Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Southern Gothic through an Asian-American lens is on stage in a world premiere at Actors Express. Keiko Green draws similarities between Japanese and Southern cultures in her play Hometown Boy. We'll hear from the Atlanta-born playwright and director Rebecca Ware about the new work later this hour. First, the last comic standing ended in 2015 after nine seasons, and the winner was Atlanta comedian Clayton English. He has since headlined in clubs, at colleges, and comedy festivals nationwide, as well as appearing in TV shows including Love on Netflix and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Clayton English will headline this weekend's Red Clay Comedy Festival in Atlanta. He joins me now via Zoom with comedian and founder of the festival, Gilbert Lowand. Welcome to City Lights. Well, glad to be here. Thank you, Lois. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Oh, such a treat. So, Gilbert. I saw that video where you talk about being born in Baghdad, Iraq, to Catholic parents, and then your family moved to South Georgia when you were six years old. Right. To say those places are worlds apart does not begin to understate it, I imagine. How did those different identities inspire you to pursue comedy oh that's a great question um i mean it's always in the in the backdrop of all my material whether it's like explicitly about that or if it's you know commentary and stuff it's growing up in warm springs georgia on a farm (laughs) and uh being brown from iraq gets you like you know a lot of comics have this sort of i wouldn't say it's a, a chip on the shoulder but it's always like this verbal ability to like protect yourself so like i had this weird habit i guess for years where if i was in a room and somebody new walked in i would spend the first three or four minutes going if i got an argument with them here's what i would say to them and i guess it's kind of like a defense mechanism but 
it definitely um, colors a lot of my life and obviously then my comedy. So, And yeah. here you are. Here I am. <laughs> Would you tell us about your decision to leave the corporate world in 2007 to produce comedy shows like this one? Sure. Um, I, uh, I got into comedy later in life than, than most people. I uh, was 32 and I've always been a huge fan of comedy. Just never thought I'd actually do it. You know, I think a lot of comics are like that where they're like huge fans of it growing up, you know, Comedy Central and whatnot, but it sometimes never enters their mind as a, as a realistic possibility, much less a career path. But a friend of mine that I made in grad school had, been, had done comedy a few times and he was like, you know, I know how much you love it. You should come to the show tonight where I'm headlining and, you know, I'll get the guy to put you up for three or four minutes. You don't have to tell anybody. That place was it was called Showcase Comedy Lounge, oh. which, is, which is now Punchline. But in between that became Comedy Gold, which is what a place that I shortly after I did that set and fell in love with it and was like, OK, let's not just have money and let's have roommates for the rest of our lives. Let's do this. <laughs> and it became Comedy Gold, a, a show that I uh, uh, booked to produce with a friend of mine, Jared Harris, for a year and a half. So I ended up like shortly after that, like a year after that, hosting every Friday and Saturday there for a year and a half. I jumped into it in a, in a way where I tried to use my skill set in the corporate world and also my interest and uh, love of the production of shows too and booking them. So I kind of jumped in uh, later in life, but also jumped in with both feet as far as like networking and putting shows together because I really enjoyed that right off the bat. Because comedy is kind of crazy. It's the craziest occupation or uh, entertainment offering where if you like if you're a fan of someone you can do a show with them like flat out you know you can be like just pay them promote it like you can't say i'm playing guitar i'm gonna open for pink floyd next week you can't really say <laughs> that but in comedy if you pay people if you like put it together you can work with anyone you want which well, is crazy good solution for your skill set I, I although i hesitate to call talent a skill talent is is different Clayton how did you get into comedy oh man really I had been told that it's something that I should do from a lot of friends just all through high school and going through college but it just wasn't something that I actually could see or touch you know you see what people's jobs are and nobody that I looked around and saw was a comedian or any type of performer really so I always loved comedy. My parents used to let me watch like comedy specials way before they probably should have. Like <laughs> they would just say, you know, just don't repeat these words. And I'd be like, of course not. And then as soon as I get on the bus, I'd repeat verbatim what I just heard George Carlin say or Robin oh, Harris my. or any of these people who it just amazed me that they were funny like for an hour. And I'd look at my parents and I was like, y'all haven't even been funny all week. Y'all have been, <laughs> you haven't even gave me five minutes of funny. And this dude just did a solid 45. Like I even, I, like as a kid, I used to just be in awe of their ability to paint a picture and just talk and have people interested and in hanging on to their every word without, you know, having music or out, without having an instrument or without being able to sing. I was always able to make people laugh. Like uh, even as a kid, I remember going to a sleepover like in second grade and the whole night 
I was having this kids like older brother and sister laughing my jokes. His, his older brother and sister is probably like middle school and high school. And they're laughing at everything. And when it's time for me to leave, they're like, man, you got to make sure he comes back. And like years Aww. later, I look back and I'm like, oh, that was my first getting booked. Like, <laughs> you know, I got booked to do a show before I do it. I hope they paid you. And, you know, they paid me in, uh, in, in kid prices. So sweet tarts and sour patch kids is probably what I was paid in. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was cool. And then I always had that ability to make people laugh. A few friends I had in college roommates were like, you need to do comedy. You should. I looked into it, but I was never really quite ready to get in there until I came back to Atlanta. And I started going to places like the punchline where you'd have to sign up a week before you went up on the open mic. So I'd sign up and then I wouldn't show back the next week. And it just started nagging on me. It just became this thing where I have to try this. Even if it doesn't work, I just have to see what, what's gonna happen. I can't check out of earth knowing that I never tried this one thing that I might possibly could have been good at. And the first time I performed, uh, it was at a place called the Twisted Taco. It's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Twisted. That's where we met. Yeah, yep, yep. And that's where uh, I met Gilbert and, uh, and pretty much my comedy family, you know, that's, that's kind of where my journey started. That was one of the first places I went up and was, I was going there week after week and the guy wouldn't put me up. And then finally he put me up and I just went up and I did good. I don't remember what I said. I didn't have anything planned out, but I did decent. I got some laughs and I just remember getting off the stage and my stomach was hurting. Like I had been kicked in it. Like somebody had just kicked me in my stomach. My stomach was in knots. I remember sitting on the curb and like, it was people walking by and they were like, oh, he's drunk, he, he's messed up. And I'm like, <laughs> no, like I just figured out what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. So most people get those knots before they go up, but I got it after my first real set. Which suggests that you feel perfectly natural on stage. And that's how you come across. I would never guess that, <laughs> that you were anxious. Yeah, I mean, I just, I try to I try to figure out what makes my friends laugh, what makes the people I'm talking to daily, my family laugh. And then I think your job as a comedian is to figure out how to get the audience to see it the same way. Well, each of you talk about how difficult a career path comedy can be. I, I have long believed comedy is more profound than drama. And it also takes such tremendous effort. I mean, how long do you work on sets? And do you work on them alone? Or are you trying stuff out? There, there's a certain level that every comic has of like prolificness, which the guy you're talking to right now, Clayton, is probably the most prolific person I've ever met in my life. But there's a certain level of like ability to, to have new stuff. Because like at this point, or even, you know, early in the career, you, you can go up there and do well, but then you get off stage and you're like, did I get better as a comedian? And th so there's a fine line of like having that performance, like sharpness, and then also trying new stuff. And I try to like always have something new, especially lately. I've migrated toward like what I enjoy more, which is more, I wouldn't say it's free form, but it, it's grounded in like material, but 
when I first went up, I would have like my set typed out and I would have like the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the set list. And now I just like, know what I'm opening and closing with probably. And I try to have new stuff that I'm working out, at, you know, every week, at least something. Yeah. And it's all, it, it just, it's all malleable. Like it's mm-hmm. form stuff different ways. Like I have so many different ways to tell jokes, a different joke. Like once you've built up enough, I guess you could call it flight hours on the stage. You know, you have certain things where I have categories in my brain where the audience member were to say something, then I know I have something for that. If they have a job, this is their job, then I have something for that. And you have all these things and you really, you don't even know it consciously. They just connect on stage. That's That's what I love. When my brain is firing and it grabs something so fast that it's like, that that's being in the zone to me. I like the free form style too. That's always kind of how I performed. I never really was type it out and I got to say it verbatim. It's just, what's the key point for this thought? Write that down and I know how I think. And so then as the joke grows, it you know goes from being maybe a two minute bit to a five minute bit to by the end of it, now you've got a bit that's you know, 10 minutes long and it's a whole chunk of a set. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with comedian Clayton English, along with fellow comedian and founder of the Red Clay Comedy Festival, Gilbert Lawand. I've got to tell you, I love your political humor and your impression of President Obama. (laughs) I think... I think if you were ever able to get Mrs. Obama's phone number, I bet if you called her, she'd think it was her husband. You think I could pull it off for a second? I do. (laughs) That means a lot. That's good. That's good. I mean, you know, being the first African-American president and everything, I watched him a lot. And so that's one of those things that just kind of seeped in. I remember hearing Phil Hartman say that he's not a great impressionist. He just does people that's within his range. I remember just watching him one day and I, and I like tried to do it and I was like, I think, yeah, I think I'm in that range. <laughs> well, it, it was great. Similarly, Gilbert, you said something about rednecks can't be created or destroyed. They just change form. I mean, that sort of distills every stereotype we have of someone who is intolerant anywhere in the world. Spin the globe, put your finger down. You described it as something scientific. What? what yeah, I said, the, um, I said they're not just in the South, they're all over this country, all over this world. They can't they be created or destroyed. Uh, they just change form, like the first law, <laughs> the first law of thermodynamics. And then I do, I do a joke about basically um, Fight Club, where I'm like, the first law of thermodynamics is you do not talk about thermodynamics. There you and go. The second law is entropy. And that one never gets a laugh, and it's just for me. I try to do more of that. Like, the best jokes to me are the ones that, like, are making a point without, like, being preachy or, or like, even let people even think they're making a point, you know? Clayton's really good at that. It's hard to do political stuff without turning people off or or even talking about culture without people going, oh, I know where he's going. 
Yeah, it was very inclusive, Clayton, when you said you like to have a president who's smarter than you. I feel that way, too, you know, about what you say. If you can understand anything past the first three words, (laughs) you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, and I think my approach is always I'm going to talk to people how I would want to be talked to. Like, you can make a point without making somebody feel bad about their point of view. And I think it's more impactful when they come to a realization like, dang, that is kind of true. Because when you just get up there and you you tell somebody, oh, what you think is stupid in the way that I think is correct, or or if you don't think like this, you must be dumb. And nobody's nobody's gonna listen to you past you saying that because you've put them in a category and thrown them away, basically. You know, you've discredited everything that they might think or believe. This is how we find commonality. Yeah. You can actually say comedy is unifying at its best. Yes. Yeah, that joke of Clay's is particularly brilliant in my opinion because he throws himself into an identif- a position of identifying with Donald Trump, where he's like, hey, you know, I, he talks like he lies like I do. You know, it's <laughs> like basically the, the overarching theme, I think, is like, I want more out of the president. And, I, you know, and this one, this guy is not so much, but it's like me and I need, I need more than me to be president. And so people are like not turned off. They're just like laughing not even knowing that they're agreeing with him if they don't even agree with him politically. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, that's crazy y'all say that. Like, because it's been shows where I've had, I might talk about, you know, the police and racial profiling and what's going on with that. And I remember I had one joke and I, I said, yeah, the police pulled me over the other day. Neither one of us got out of the car. We were both scared. We didn't. And <laughs> yeah. a police officer after the show came to me and he was like, "That's that's true." Like he was like, "I was laughing." Like that's okay, good. Because now after that, I can have a more thorough dialogue with him. Like I was able to find out that a lot of times it's one police officer that pulls you over, but it's a lot of police officers that really want action and they'll show up as soon as another call gets there. So now it's three cars there. And the the two other cars that came up there are more gung ho and aggressive, and 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 then it escalates the situation. And I don't think that's something I ever would have even considered thinking about because I think you know they're pulling me over as three cop cars because I'm a black man. But him being able to respond to that joke and, and find some like common interest in it opened up a whole dialogue and allowed me to look at stuff like, oh, okay, like this is stuff, this is how we get places if we can actually talk about these things. Wow, you're a therapist. (laughs) You, Clayton, deservedly have had lots of attention for winning the 2015 last comic standing competition. For those unfamiliar with the contest, would you? explain how it works uh yeah it's it starts out i think they start off with a hundred comedians and is judged by my well the season i did was judged by roseanne norm mcdonald rest in peace and keenan ivory wayne and oh wow so those were my judges and i think the thing i was worried about was i don't know how to do it for a judge but i knew one thing i had was i know how to perform for an audience i had 
honed that and worked so hard at it here in Atlanta that I knew if, if you just give me people in the audience, I might have a chance. And as the competition wore on, I think it goes from 100 to 50 to 25 to 10 to five until you get down to the last, you know, comic standing. And the first few rounds are all about three minutes. And then once you get down, I think the final two rounds may be five minutes a piece, if I'm remembering correctly. And the thing that I kind of knew I like might have a chance was I was in the green room and they've got us all in the green room and you've got different types of comedians. You've got introverts, you've got extroverts. You've got people that are always performing. You've got people that are always on. You've got people with their headphones on trying to get in their zone. And I was just looking around the room and I was noticing people's conversations. And some people were saying things like, I'm not worried about this. I'm booked up for the rest of the year. I got six shows that I'm trying to get back to. And I remember hearing these people say these things. And then I just remember thinking in my head, like, I don't have any of that. Like. I need this, <laughs> it's like, I need this win. <laughs> like, like if you don't want it, like I, I remember seeing and I was like, oh, some of these people don't even want to win. What? I gotta win because I, my, my main goal just going into the competition, um, and shout out to Wanda Sykes and, and Paige Horowitz, they were great. Um, my thing was just, if I could crack the top 10, maybe I could work on the road as a working comedian. And that was my only goal. I mean, uh, us Atlanta comics were, were like not surprised at all because Clayton's been next level since I've known him. And I mean, we would have been shocked if anybody would have beat him. <laughs> but the pressure of having to whittle down your material to a three to five minute set, it must have been tremendous. For me, Atlanta kind of prepared me for that because... Atlanta crowds are, are tough crowds. So they really only give you about a minute to get to something funny before they either check out, start booing, or <laughs> want you off the stage. So I was coming up in Atlanta and you go to these places where you didn't have a lot of time to walk into your material and stuff. You had to go up and you had to hit them fast and get out of there quick. I think the phrase that I used to always hear from uh, some of the older comics in Atlanta was hit them and quit them. Hit them and quit them. <laughs> Wait, so Clayton, you're giving a, a, a new name. Forget the New York minute. There's an Atlanta minute yes. for comics. <laughs> and if you don't hit it, you're done? Yeah, like if you're not, uh, uh, it's a lot of rooms like, Atlanta's great because we have a great comedy scene. We don't have a lot of comedy clubs, but that's starting to change. And that's one thing Gilbert was definitely trying to do. He was trying to get us that comedy club vibe that other cities have. So we could become, you know, better performers because a lot of shows take place at, it's a bar, it's a sports bar, it's a pool hall. This is a lounge. It's not a proper comedy club. Gilbert, don't you call it ambush comedy? where the people yeah, at the yeah. place don't like, even you, know that there's a show going on and it's like exactly. you're just like you're, their meal. <laughs> yeah, and you can't even be mad at them. It's like, you're in the wrong. You're like, what are you guys doing? Catching up? And it's like, you know, with old friends and nothing tell you there's a comedy show? Yeah. Okay, so this is a no-win situation right off the bat. So those non-traditional menus popped up and they've been a very strong alternative to comedy clubs in general since then because people 
fans they they'll go see you anywhere so like it became you know less mainstream and more nuanced or niche or however you want to describe it and is your reason for starting red clay does that have to do with what clayton was saying about maybe expanding the range of a comedy scene here in atlanta in a way i think it, it started off that way it's less profound than it is more me going, you know what? I love these comics. And I, once a year, I can just get a bunch of people that I love that are hilarious to come hang out with me in Atlanta. <laughs> it is like started off with that because all the comics in Atlanta are proud of Atlanta and they like the good ones are ambassadors of the scene. Ours is personality is more of a comic vacation for comedy super fans. We don't court like industry. They definitely come because of the great lineups, but we're all comic-centric and like want everybody to have a great Atlanta experience. Gilbert Lewand, founder of the Red Clay Comedy Festival and Atlanta comedian Clayton English. The festival starts tomorrow, Thursday, November 4th, and runs through Saturday. You can find out more information on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, we'll learn about the often overlooked culture of African Americans who live in the Appalachians. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When you hear the term Appalachia, people of color are not normally in the images that come to mind. Afrolatia refers to people of African American heritage who are native to or live in the Appalachian Mountains. Chris Aluka Berry is a photographer who documented the life of Afrolatian people in an effort to bring awareness and dignity to their culture. When his works originally were installed along the West Side Trail of the Atlanta Beltline, Berry joined me via Zoom and began explaining how he learned about the Afrolatian people. You know, it's a really interesting story. Um, I was working as a photojournalist um, at the state paper in South Carolina, uh, which at one time was a, a really great newspaper. 
And I had a friend who lived in Georgia and she was in college with a young lady um, who was an African-American woman. And she was telling my friend about her family in the North Georgia mountains and um, how they had been there for over a hundred years. And I've been hiking and camping in the mountains ever since I was a teenager. And I just never saw much diversity while I was up there. So this really intrigued me. And I started trying to do some searches online and I just didn't find any visual representation. Everything that I found pretty much just showed white folks. So I was on assignment for Reuters and I was in Tocoa, Georgia, and I started asking around different folks. And then somehow the word got around to a woman named Marie Cochran, who's a a great friend now. And she started the Afrolachian Artist Project. And she actually reached out to me and she was the first person that told me about the word Afrolachia, um, which, was, which was actually invented by a gentleman by the name of Frank X. Walker in the 1990s. He was the uh, first African-American uh, poet laureate of uh, Kentucky. Marie and I, in 2016, she took me to a small town in western North Carolina called Cullowee, North Carolina, and went to this little small church There were maybe six people at the service and the folks just welcomed me in and I started photographing and the eldest woman there, a beautiful woman by the name of Louise Allen, Miss May Louise Allen. She was 93 years old and I photographed her with her sister. I was going to come back in three weeks to interview her and make more photos. And within that time, she passed away. And that's when I realized that not only is the Afrolatian culture something that a lot of people don't know about. But unfortunately, it is a culture that is fading away. A, a lot of communities are disappearing. In the, in the four and a half years I've been working on this project, 12 people I photographed have passed away. And young people just aren't remaining. Yes, ma'am. It's the same for the white folks as well. You know, folks leave the rural areas to pursue jobs, better opportunities, There's a lot of different reasons why people leave the mountains. And and then, of course, there's reasons why certain people stay. And the people that stay really are connected to the land. And I'll say this, the folks I have found up there, they identify as much with being Appalachian as they do with being African-American. In some church services, the preacher will be making references to Patsy Cline and, you know, just all of these different things that you would think are mainly a part of white culture. It's a beautiful hybrid, and, and that's what really makes it a unique part of American culture. There's just so many fabulous stories I could share with you, Lois, uh, stories of Black communities that were completely self-sufficient, stories of African-Americans owning entire mountainsides, folks being so successful that they were hiring white folks to come do their laundry rather than vice versa. It is really a part of American history that I think a lot of people would really love to learn about. Sure. Along with depicting daily life in the Appalachian Mountains, You also showcase some more somber experiences, such as funerals. How did you develop relationships and trust with these people that enabled you to capture those deeply personal moments? You know, I'll tell you the truth. That's really the hardest part of my job. Making photos is kind of the easy part, but it's it's building the trust and, and getting the access. And, you know, really, I think it, it comes down to the golden rule, treating people the way you want to be treated. 
um, being upfront with people, telling them why you're there. And you know, every community I go into, I'm, I'm real upfront. I'll, I'll say, Hey, look, you know, unless you're from the mountains, you really don't know the diversity that, that is up here. And it's real important to me that, that, that change, I have actually had people call me and invite me to photograph their father's funeral, their grandfather's funeral. Once people found out that what I was doing, because this is as much a, a, a photojournalism project, an art project, but it's really a project of preserving this history. And so people have invited me in. And I'll tell you, I've, I have photographed so many funerals in my life, so many soldiers coming back from war and different things over the years to where I feel like we're, we're almost the closest to life when we're at a funeral. And it's a place where where you can make really powerful images and it, it crosses all divides. It crosses all cultures. We can all relate to what it feels like to lose a loved one, you know? And I think it's those universal things that bring us together, but it takes time. And that's why I really enjoy spending multiple years working on a project rather than just just flying in on a daily assignment and, and leaving. I feel like that, that is the key is building that trust. Please tell us about your photos along the Atlanta Belt Line's West Side Trail. As you can imagine, I, I have thousands and thousands of photos. And I, you know, I'm hoping to do a book, but on the fence, there are five photographs. They're all from North Georgia. Several of them are from a camp meeting. There's a camp meeting, Lois, in White County, Georgia, that has been taking place since 1886. It takes place on the same plot of land under the same arbor that was built by freed slaves. And their ancestors meet every year for a weekend of fellowship. And I will go up there and I set up my tent and I camp out. It it, it truly is a sacred, sacred ground. And then there are other photos from a a family, the Jenkins family in Cleveland, Georgia. Uh, One photo is of a Timmy Joe Jenkins who invited me to photograph his father's funeral and actually spent time with him and his mother the morning of. I went to their home and documented what that day was like. And then about a month later, Timmy Joe was cleaning out his uh, father's garage. And it was a very emotional time for him. And uh, one of the photos is from that as well. So, yeah, it's, it's just a small, small glimpse. And, and even my website is a small glimpse. Can you talk a bit about the Fence Project and how you got involved? You know, the, the photography community here in Atlanta is really beautiful. And people are always trying to help each other and look out for each other. I did a talk at a, a group called ATL Photo Night. Uh, several years ago and showed some of the photos and made some contacts. And um, I had had some different people just encourage me to enter it, to submit my photos. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of contests and things like that, but I felt like I should do it. And uh, they were actually offering a reduced rate because of uh, COVID. So it wasn't very expensive to submit my photos. And it it was really um, from other people telling me about it and, and encouraging me to do so. Photographer Chris Aluka Berry, though his photos came down from the West Side Trail in June, you can still view them on his website, alukastorytellingphotography.com. Coming up, we'll hear about the world premiere of Hometown Boy on stage at Actors Express. 
You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Can you ever really go back home again? If you try to return, it's usually not the same as you remember it. Author Thomas Wolfe, in his novel You Can't Go Home Again, coined the adage, and it's the central question to the new play, Hometown Boy, making its world premiere at Actors Express. The playwright Keiko Green and director Rebecca Ware join me now via Zoom to talk more about the play. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. Keiko, what inspired you to come up with this story? I actually grew up in Georgia. This is a story about Southerners, and it actually takes place in the state of Georgia. And I've always kind of wanted to take a artistic journey back. I I left when I was about 17, 18 for college and my parents moved away. And so I had always, you know, wanted to explore that part of me, you know, this, this place that, that is, is such a huge part of who I am today. And so partially it's based on the locations and my, you know, my, I didn't grow up in a rural area. I grew up in Marietta, but I was always interested in, you know, what, like, what that does to us are are those hot summers, our humid, that humidity. And I'm also just really inspired by a lot of Southern Gothics. And, you know, I always kind of wondered what's my version of a Southern Gothic. And so this is kind of what came out. And can you give us a synopsis? Yeah, absolutely. So our play opens with James, who is a 25 year old man. He's Asian American and he and his new girlfriend, Bex, have just arrived back in there uh, in rural Georgia um, in a house that he hasn't seen in 10 years to check in on his father, Walter, who was born and raised in the small town. And he is, you know, starting to have some, uh, some of his me- mental faculties are starting to go. And, and so he's been sent basically to check in on his father. And what we realize over the course of the story is that there are a lot of family secrets and there's a reason why James hasn't come back in those 10 years and those secrets slowly get revealed over the course of an hour and a half to two hours or so. Mm. Yeah, the, the publicity material states the South has a way of holding on to secrets. <laughs> In what ways do you think Southerners are more private or or not as forthcoming with their personal lives as people from other places? Yeah, I I would say, um, so I'm half Japanese. I grew up here in Georgia, like I said. And I actually think that there's a lot of similarities between the culture in the South and Japanese culture. And that goes beyond just our love of tea and okra. <laughs> you know, I think it. there is actually a, um, 
You know, there, there's something about etiquette and respecting your family and that kind of outward facing personality that we kind of put on, even though I think that Southern hospitality is very real. My husband has been shocked by how many people look him in the eye here and say hello. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that there's something about um, keeping up appearances that exists in both cultures, actually. And with that comes also a you know, some things stay in the past kind of mentality. So that outward reserve is very much cultural. I think so. Comment to both. Three of the main characters are of Asian descent. Rebecca, did you do the casting? Yeah, it was very much a collaboration. So Actors Express has an actual casting director. And then especially you know, when I'm working on a new play, I always want to bring the playwright into the room for casting because we are figuring out what this play looks like together. So it's an opportunity for us to to craft that and to figure it out. There was a group of us that were kind of on the casting team. So it was Keiko and Sheila. And then uh, Actors Express also has a fantastic producer, Amanda. It was a bunch of us in the room. And Why was it important to select a diverse cast for this play? Oh, well, I mean, I think that Keiko has very specifically written this piece to look at Asian Americans in Georgia. And so, you know, some of the casting is not open in terms of race or ethnicity. It's actually very specific. But one of the amazing things about the casting process is that we were able to actually cast some of the actors in terms of a specific ethnicity. And so I don't want to give away too much from the play, but some of the actors were able to, in the rehearsal room, actually bring in stories from their family's heritage or from their family's actually like very painful past and to to help us hone in on what the characters themselves would say and how those those experiences, both for the characters and the actors, interrelate. Keiko, do you identify with the main character, with James? I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, truthfully, I think that, you know, every single character in the play is some different aspect of my personality. And so, of course, I do. But I think that I'm also exploring, you know, this isn't a play where we're you know, showing a light on Asian Americans in the South as these flawless perfect people who are dealing with it you know it's not a black and white story like that it's actually quite complicated and so i think our asian american characters are deeply deeply flawed (laughs) and and some of them you know and, and he he specifically is carrying a lot from his past with him that it has um stunted his his growth, I think his, his maturity, and he shows a lot of signs of, you know, toxic masculinity as well. And so I do identify with him. I also think that he is an exploration of a masculinity that, that I don't personally identify with, but I'm uh, interested and excited by. Hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. 
I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with playwright Keiko Green and director Rebecca Weir about their production of Hometown Boy at Actors Express. Rebecca, what can you tell us about the set design? Oh my gosh, it's amazing. (laughs) This is my first time working in Atlanta, and so I didn't really realize before I got into this process that the two set designers, Mariah and Isabel Curly Clay, have this uh, amazing reputation around town. And I just have to say that it is completely warranted and <laughs> um, and I'm really excited for everyone to see the piece. So one of the challenges of the script is that there's a few different locations in it. And so when I went to the Curly Clays in our original conversations at the top, I was like, how can we build in multiple locations and still have it be a surprise for the audience. So I feel like I I maybe shouldn't even have said that much and now I'm not going to say any more, but I will just say that I think that the Curly Clays um, have done an incredible job. And also, of course, the the crew and the staff at Actors Express, everyone's done a really incredible job creating a set that is both very realistic and I think has some delicious surprises in store. Ooh. Keiko, your plays are known for blending or bending genres. How does Hometown Boy fit that description? One thing that I've learned as my writing has evolved and as I've gone on this journey as a playwright has been, I think that where other playwrights might have a specific voice or style that you can see in every piece, my plays aren't like that. They really vary from piece to piece. And so with this play, it's it's extremely naturalistic. We're living in the real world with perhaps some moments that are, are taking us out. And, and I think that's probably uh, what I would say is that we are living in a world that in, it, when, when you come to Hometown Boy, you can expect to see some real people having some real conversations, dealing with some real issues. And there are also going to be moments that seem to pull us out, um, little tiny moments of magic. And part of that is that the play takes place during a kind of a a thunderstorm that's coming through, that's just washing through the town. And there is a bit of, there's a a kind of electric magic, you know, in the air when, when you feel a thunderstorm coming. And I think that's actually kind of the feeling that I want the audience to have is, you know, how can we put that kind of, when the air feels like it's full of electricity, how can we manifest that onto the stage and for myself just through the through the page? So that's probably what you can expect when it comes to Hometown Boy. Hmm. I know Freddie Ashley, the wonderful artistic director of Actors Express, has glowing things to say about your writing. What's it like to have the world premiere of Hometown Boy in Atlanta? I am so excited. (laughs) It's interesting because the story, um, like I said, it follows the story of this young man who hasn't been back to his hometown in 10 years. I myself haven't been back to the Atlanta area in, in probably about 12 years or so. So there's something just beautifully paralleling each other when it comes to reality and the content of the, of the play. And it just feels so right. 
And it's, there's a tendency um, when we've developed this show before in various places for actors around the country to think of Southerners as the, they're all, you know, they're all from Gone with the Wind and <laughs> these long, uh, you know, they, they take five minutes to get through maybe a minute's worth of text because they think of Southerners as these really kind of slow talk and whiskey drinking <laughs> people <laughs> when really Southerners can speak just as fast as everybody else. And so it, it's been really nice to just manage a, the play moves really quickly. And it's been really great to get a hold of actors that we don't have to have that conversation of, we need to keep this play moving. You know, we want audiences at the edge of their seats. I'm impressed by the working relationship you two have. Keiko, it sounds like Rebecca is the playwright's director in the way she involved you. Have you two worked together before? Yeah, so Keiko and I did a very brief, maybe like like three-day rehearsal process together to, to develop another one of her pieces, Exotic Deadly, with a group of undergraduate students at UC Santa Barbara we'd had like a chance to kind of get each other's vibe, at least in the Zoom room. But I have to say, while that was fantastic, of course, it's like so much more exciting to actually be in person and to be like, you know, having a glass of wine while we talk about our notes <laughs> <laughs> or just being able to, you know, lean over or, you know, obviously six feet apart, but to like <laughs> lean sort of across the table and pass notes back and forth and think through things almost more with like a look or with a gesture. So it's, it's just the best, like developing new work with a playwright that you can also develop both a literal and an unspoken vocabulary with is, I think, one of the most exciting experiences a director can have right now. Playwright Keiko Green and director Rebecca Ware. The world premiere of Hometown Boy is on stage at Actors Express through November 28th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Congratulations to our hometown braves, the 2021 World Series champions. Now, if you are not ready to say goodbye yet to Truist Park for the year, you can head to the Battery Atlanta in Cobb County for free movie nights this fall. The Outdoor Xfinity movie series will run Friday nights through December 10th. Each weekend, they're offering a family favorite classic on the Plaza Green, Moviegoers can order food from one of several restaurants nearby and bring it to the lawn for a dinner and a show experience. The movie Trolls will kick off the series this Friday. To find the list of their upcoming films, you can check online at batteryatl.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the writer, director, and producer, 
Jonathan Mann joins us to discuss his new film, The Oratorio, a documentary with Martin Scorsese. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.